Amen. You probably noticed in my prayer there, there's a lot of times I think that we go through some scripture, and, and actually it's interesting, uh, last week we're, we're going through the life of Christ in our church, and this is the, the passage that I came to, and generally speaking, I won't, uh, I, I don't, if I'm asked to preach someplace else, I don't share the same scripture with uh, where I'm going as I am at home, at our home church, and, uh, but the Lord really impressed upon me this particular passage. And uh, we, we've come to this in, in the life of Christ, but last week we were talking about that uh, red-letter Bibles. A lot of times people, they, they have a red-letter Bible and they say, oh, the red letters are more important because Jesus said them. And that's not true. And, and the reason why I can tell you that it's not true is, first of all, John 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. So all of this is Jesus, Right? Not just the red letters. They're all important. And um, we have to be very, very careful to try to say that one part of Scripture is more important than another. Uh, like John 3.16. I mean, believe me, if, if you're a, a believer in Christ uh, and you have that hope in Christ, I understand why John 3.16 really resonates with us. Why, why we think that it's extremely important. But these other words are no less important. And, and God really opened my eyes to this. Um, and it looks like this particular passage is kind of out of context. We've already been introduced, if you know anything about the, the Gospel of John, to, to John the Baptist. Of course, he's not the writer. He's just the, the person that John the disciple is writing about at this particular time. But um, we've already been introduced. John's already professed that Jesus the Christ, is the Christ. Uh, in John's gospel, it doesn't actually tell us that he, it doesn't tell us the story of, of his baptism, but John tells us what happened at his baptism to, to proclaim Jesus as the Christ and, and things. And then uh, Jesus pretty much will start his ministry. Uh, we, we see a, a miracle at a wedding in Cana, um, the only miracle so far recorded in, in the gospel of John. Then uh, we see um, uh, Jesus go to the temple. And he, he cleanses the temple, per se. And then right after this, Nicodemus, in, in the earlier part of chapter 3 here, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And he says, teacher, rabbi, you know, we know that you're a man from God because no one can do the things that you do and not be sent here by God. Which tells us that there obviously has been more than the one miracle at Canaan. Uh, that, uh, that Jesus, that is recorded here in John, uh, because Nicodemus has recognized that. And then, of course, the interesting conversation happens between Jesus and Nicodemus about being born again. Being born again, and, and Nicodemus is really just baffled by it. Then, strangely enough, here we're reintroduced to John, and John appears to be, at first glance, to be sharing the same message. All over again. I'm not the Christ. He's the Christ. And, and we're kind of confused why. And, and a piece of scripture that really resonated with me that helped me see this, um, that this was really important and I needed to take a deeper look at it was this. John 21, 25. John tells us, Now there are also many things that Jesus did where every one of them were to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
So basically what John's telling us there in John 21 is, you know what, I'm writing this gospel message with a very clear purpose. And everything that I put in this this gospel message, everything I've told you in this story, I've put there with, with a very clear purpose that you would understand and know who Jesus is. But understand that I couldn't tell you everything. Because if I, if I wrote everything out, I, I, I couldn't write everything out. Everything that Jesus did and said just can't be recorded. So I've taken the important things and I've put them here in this, this message for you. Now, when he tells us that, it's a pretty good indication for us to see that John didn't waste any words in his gospel. And these words here, after this conversation with Nicodemus here from 22 to the end of chapter 3, these are just as important as John 3.16 and and those words surrounding that conversation. Does that make sense? Okay. So, to give us an understanding about this passage, basically what happens is, here in in the first few verses, we're kind of given the background. We're told that Jesus is now with his disciples. They've went back to the Judean countryside, and they're... They're baptizing people. And actually, I believe it's in chapter 4, it might be in chapter 5, we're told that Jesus didn't actually do any of the baptizing himself. The disciples were doing it, but, but people were doing it because of Jesus' message. Okay? They were being baptized through Jesus' ministry, if you will, in the Judean countryside. And um, this all has come about because, again, of John's witness. Earlier, we, we see in... in um, John chapter 2, that as a result of John saying, uh, hey, he's the Christ, a couple of his disciples left, Andrew being one of them, the other one unnamed, we believe it was probably the Apostle John. Uh, they, they left John's ministry and they started following Jesus. And so here, um, Jesus has, ministry has, has, has started People are being baptized into his ministry. But John is still baptizing people. And this creates a a conversation, or more accurately, it would be better described as a dispute between some of John's disciples and this Jewish person. And and the only thing we're really told about this dispute is that it, it, it has arisen because of Jesus baptizing people. More people going to Jesus' ministry than to John's ministry, and, and that it has something to do with purification. And I kind of suppose that perhaps it would be something like this. You know, hey, hey, John, what's the deal? What's the deal, John? You know, we came and, and we're, we got this great thriving ministry going on here at, at Parachute, and, and we're baptizing people and we're telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and that guy... That guy that you was with on the other side of the Jordan. You told everybody he's the Christ. And now everybody's going over to him and, and being baptized by him. So is his baptism more important than your baptism? Is there something about your baptism that's not as pure? That it doesn't create the same kind of purification that his baptism does? I mean, again, we're not told really what the conversation was, but can you, can you see that it probably had something to do like that? And today I believe that in a lot of our churches, we, unfortunately, we have a us versus them mentality oftentimes. We want our church to flourish and to, and to prosper. And um, believe it or not, I've actually had pastors uh, 
basically come right out and tell me that, uh, you know, hey, you guys are starting a new church here in Fruta. And, and without saying it directly, they've told me, hey, you guys are competition for us. In fact, I actually had one pastor tell us one time, Kelly and I was talking to him, and I asked him, I said, hey, how many, how many people do you believe truly have a relationship with Christ here in, in, in the valley? He says, oh, two or three percent of people. Which is appalling and sounds really low, but uh, the Southern Baptist Convention actually did a scientific survey here a few years ago, and they, they figured that about 7% of people is all in, in the state of Colorado that truly have a relationship with Christ. And I would say that those numbers were probably even inflated. They were being very generous with that 7%. But in talking to this gentleman, I said, uh, we, we had a nice conversation um, well, kind of. I, I'll be really honest. He was rude, and I didn't care for the guy. And that's not, I shouldn't say that, but it's just the truth about how I feel. And, and then in the, the end, though, I asked him, I said, hey, if you could, if you could uh, advise a young church planner coming in to start a new church here in Fruto, what kind of advice could you give me? And he says, Mike, it's all about competition. We're all trying to get the same two to three, same two or three percent of people to come to our church. And a lot of times, that's what I mean. We don't. He was just bold enough to say what a lot of pastors won't say. And and it's sad. And when we left, Kelly said, "What'd you think about him?" I was like, "Man, the guy's a jerk." I know why his church hasn't grown, and I'm not worried about the two or three percent that don't know Christ. I'm worried about the ninety-seven percent that don't. You know. But a lot of times when we look at churches or we look at ministries as a whole, we evaluate things based off of attendance, the number of baptisms, how many people is coming to us versus how many people are going to them. And in essence, that's exactly what the problem was here for John's disciples. Hey, John, we're honoring God with our ministry. Why are we not being blessed? Why are more people going over there than they're coming over here? Now, hear me out here. Just because a church has a lot of people doesn't mean that it's a good ministry. Okay? And let me clarify that for you. I was talking to a pastor one time, a good friend of ours, and, and uh, we were talking about uh, evaluating. You know, we need to evaluate. Is our ministry being effective? Are we reaching people for Christ? And, and how do you do that apart from numbers? It's, it's kind of difficult. And we were talking about a church, a particular church that's growing like gangbusters. He's like, yeah, but Mike, cancer is the fastest growing cell in the body. So growth isn't necessarily always good, is it? We have to be very, very careful. And there's a lot of churches out there that are so-called churches that have a lot of people. But that doesn't mean that the gospel is being declared and that people's lives are being changed positively. Their lives might be changed. They might think that uh, things are going great for them, but do they have an assurance in eternity? So what does John mean here with all this? And, and the only way that we can really figure out and understand uh, things here is that we have to go through his wording, his answer, his, his strange answer. It doesn't really sound like he, he answers the question. They say, uh, hey, John, what's the deal? Everybody's flocking over there to follow that guy that you said was the Christ, and, and nothing's going on here. And, and he starts, excuse me, by answering, a person cannot receive any, even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. The first part of John's answer is, you know what? 
if the Lord is blessing his ministry, this is of God. This is of God. Now, again, with some churches that seem to be being blessed because they have great numbers going to their church, sometimes we pray, hey, Lord, bring a bunch of people in here. Bless us. But we pray inaccurately. Or we pray for something that's not really God-honoring. So God gives us exactly what we've asked for. And, and I, I, I don't like using this illustration, but I don't know of a better one. Sometimes people just want their best life now, if you know about that book. Okay? And God really hasn't called us to live our best life now. He's called us to live our best life in, in the kingdom to, to come, right? The kingdom that, that, that he's calling us to. The kingdom of heaven. And so if you want to live your best life now, you might want to check your motives a little bit. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a good life here. I'm not saying that at all. But sometimes Christ calls us to suffer. He's called us to do some things, to experience some things that perhaps we're not real comfortable with. It's not about our best life now. It's about bringing glory and honor and praise to Him. About reaching people for the kingdom of God. Okay? So, but at the same time, if a ministry truly is growing, fulfilling the will of God, it, it is being blessed by God. It is part of God's will. If, if the word's being declared and, and, and things, again, uh, basing it all off of numbers, we, we need to be really careful. But what John's saying here, hey, everybody's going over there to Jesus because this is part of God's overall plan. This is all part of God's overall plan. And we know this because John also says, He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John had a kingdom focus. He knew his place with Jesus. Over and over and over again, we see in, in John, all the way just through these first three chapters, uh, earlier on, they asked John, Hey, are you the Christ? He says, No, I'm not the Christ. They say, Are you Elijah or the prophet? And he says, No. I'm neither one of those guys. I'm only a voice crying out in the wilderness. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, his sandals. John had this sense of humility. He knew and understood his place in the kingdom. And, you know, in, from our perspective, especially in, in, in the Western world, we... We like to be praised. We like to be exalted. We like to be exactly the opposite of John the Baptist. But John understood things. And, and I would say he was a wonderful follower of Christ because Jesus later on tells us, hey, of those born of a woman, there's none greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a compliment. I wish that the Lord could say that about me, but unfortunately I know that I've messed up way too much to, to, to get that kind of a compliment. Going on with the answer, John says, You yourself bear witness that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Again, this is repeated. This, is, this doesn't sound like anything new. But, but let me assure you, as we go through this, there is more here. There's, there is new stuff, and it comes right after this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. 
Okay, what is he talking about here? Now, if we know our scripture, we know that, that Paul uses the illustration quite a bit about the bridegroom and the bride. The bridegroom is Christ. The bride is the church. Uh, in Revelation 21, we're told that there's going to be this great feast, and I hope that you've been invited. I've been invited. If you're a child of God, you've been invited to be at this great feast, the great uh, uh, wedding feast, right, where we get to see the bridegroom. We, as part of being the bride, he ushers us in, and we have this wonderful celebration because of what the Lord has done. Uh, and that was the Apostle John that actually wrote that. Paul also tells us in Ephesians, you know, he, he says, Husbands, you should love your wives like Jesus Christ loved the church, right, that he died for. He's the bridegroom, and, and the church is the bride. Um, you might not realize it, but... At the miracle in Cana, here in chapter 2 of, of uh, John, Jesus also illustrated that. He, he performed a miracle. But the interesting thing about that miracle was, if you look at it really closely, he used six jars. But these weren't just six ordinary water jars. They were six purification jars that he used. So Jesus uses these six jars of water that are normally used for purification, and he performs this miracle in them where he creates wine out of the water. Jesus later on tells us, he said, uh, you know, uh, remember me, drink my blood, right? And wine is a symbolic uh, evidence of, of the blood of Christ that was shed for his bride, for his bride. See, the, the, the real reason why he... When he did that uh, miracle in Cana, the bridegroom is responsible for providing everything at, at the wedding feast. The bridegroom, if you go back in there and you look at it really closely, it's the bridegroom that the host says, Hey, man, you are great. Everybody else saves the wine, the good wine for, for, for later on, or they do it first and then save the bad for later, and you've saved the best for last, you know. He's, he's complimenting the bridegroom. So here Jesus, the, the bridegroom, he's the one that has to create or uh, prepare this new life that he has for us. And this even goes into the aspect of, of his discussion with Nicodemus. Okay, with Nicodemus, um, he goes in and, and, and he says, Hey, Jesus, we know that there's something special about you. Nobody can do these things that you're doing unless uh, God is with him, and, and Jesus just spearheads the problem. Unless you're born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is appalled by this almost and, and confused at the very least. How is this possible? This makes no sense. And, and Jesus tells us uh, there at the end of that discussion, hey, the, the spirit is like the wind. It, it blows to and fro. Nobody knows from, from where it came. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It empowers you to be born again. But again, Nicodemus is kind of confused by this. John, on the other hand, isn't confused at all. He's not confused at all. And, and he's talking here about the bridegroom. And, and he says there at the end, Therefore the joy of mine is now complete. He's the friend of the bridegroom. 
And the reason why his joy is complete with all these people flocking over to Jesus' ministry is because, you know, when we hear Jesus make comments like, hey, unless you hate your mom and dad, you can't follow me. Unless you take up your cross every day, you know, you, you live this difficult life, you can't follow me. We think about somebody, if somebody was to come here in the United States and start telling us that kind of propaganda, they were, we're like, man, what kind of egotistical, arrogant, blankety-blank is this person? I mean, let's be honest, isn't that what we would say if it wasn't written down in Scripture and this wasn't a call to our faith? That's exactly what we would think. But John recognized something in Jesus that other people at that time didn't recognize because you know what they thought? The same thing we would think today if he showed up and said all these things. Man, this guy's arrogant. What kind of ego does he have? But John realized that as these people are going over to Jesus, they're not meeting this egotistical person, this arrogant man. It's the bride of Christ being called to the bridegroom. They're going there and they're meeting their Savior. They're meeting the one that provides for them. The bridegroom provides for everybody. I mean, it's a wonderful illustration here that we're seeing. And, and it's, it's funny how John kind of speaks in code, but I think his disciples got it. See, even there with, it, it says there that the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. See, there's something special about his voice. Even something special about his voice. Jesus tells us, hey, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. He used the illustration earlier, Kelly being my wife, we have this intimate relationship, right? It wouldn't be a very intimate relationship, me being her bridegroom and her being my bride, if she lived in China and I lived in Fruta. It would be hard for me to protect her. It would be hard for me to provide for her. But even if that was the case, if I called her on the phone, as soon as she said hello and I said, hey, babe, she would know the voice of her husband, of her bridegroom. It's the same way here. The bride, the church recognizes the voice of its bridegroom. The sheep hear their shepherd's voice and they recognize it and they follow him because they realize that there's safety and security in following their shepherd. And as a result of all of these truths and John recognizing this in a way that, that sometimes I think that we have a very difficult time doing, he's rejoicing because his ministry is fading away. And that makes no sense to us. Mike, you've been, you've been called to start a church. You're going to go down there in fruit and you're going to rejoice if your ministry fades away. Let me tell you what, I don't know what your view of the end time is, but if there is such a thing as the rapture, and, and uh, I go to church one day and nobody's there. There was a problem with me, but I should be rejoicing that there's nobody else there because the bridegroom has called his bride home. It's not about me. The key thing with John was he had a kingdom focus, and he said, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus Christ, and it's all about his ministry. My job was to come to declare the coming of the king and his kingdom is coming. The king is now here. The kingdom is here. My job is about done. And since my job is about done, I, have a, I had a purpose in life. And my purpose is about complete. And I can rejoice because what God has called me to do, I have succeeded in doing. 
And praise be to God because of it. Not praise be to John. Praise be to Christ. Glorify, worship, and honor Christ. The reason why I think that John understood all this is is really kind of hidden here in 31 through 36. And and it's something that we take for granted a a lot. If If you're a follower of Christ, if you have truly surrendered your life to him we all know at least we're told right and and hopefully you know if you don't know there might be an indication of a problem but you should have the spirit living inside you right okay when did the spirit start living in john the baptist at birth when when his dad went into the temple zachariah and gabriel came and and told him said hey zachariah your prayers have been heard you're not going to have a child, a son. He's going to be used by God. And Zechariah, of course, said, well, how can this be? I'm an old man. And now he was made mute for the nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. But he was told then, he said, hey, this child, he's going to be special. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And the Spirit is going to come into him even in his mother's womb. Now, for the rest of us, we have had the birth more like what Jesus explained to to Nicodemus if we're a follower of Christ, right? Where we were born physically. Later on down the road, as, as, uh, um, um, oh, have a blank here. Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, um, yeah, McDonald would say that, you know, you're walking across through life and all of a sudden, you know, you think everything's going great, that you're too sexy for your shirt, and all of a sudden the world comes crashing down and you realize that you need Jesus. I just like his illustration, so, because I'm kind of sexy for my shirt. So, but anyway, that, that's kind of happened with all of us, and then when we surrender to, to our life to Christ, then the Spirit comes in and indwells us, and we are empowered to do things that that otherwise we would never have the ability to do. We're given a spiritual gift, at least one, if not many. And God empowers us to, to be like uh, um, Peter, to stand up on, at Pentecost, the, the guy who was a coward that ran away from Jesus, and now all of a sudden he could stand here and profess to a multitude of people, and 3,000 people come to the Lord. That wasn't by the power of Peter. That was by the power of the Holy Spirit in Peter, Right? But John's had that ever since he was born. He doesn't remember a time when he didn't have the Spirit living inside of him. Okay, But it's even more different with Jesus because, remember John, he had the Spirit. Mary comes into the house with little baby Jesus in in the belly. And John leaps for joy because he's in the presence of the King. He's in the presence of his Messiah. He understood that better than Mary and Elizabeth either one did because he had the power of the Spirit living inside of him. Okay, Now, how did he identify with Jesus? How did he know that Jesus was there? That's what we're going to look at right here. Verse 31. Let me go through this slowly, and we're going to just we're going to take and pick this apart real quick. Well, I said slowly. You, you, you'll, you'll get it. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in the earthly way. Okay, Jesus is the only one that has descended from heaven, right? So he's from from the heavenly realms. He understands heavenly things. Each one of us, just like Adam, we have come from the dust of the ground, from the dust of the earth. 
Adam was made that way, even Eve being taken from Adam, well, her initial source might be from Adam, but Adam's source was from the dust of the ground. So each one of us have come from the dust of the ground because we're from Adam's lineage, right? Okay? So we think of things from an earthly standpoint. However, Jesus thinks of things from a heavenly standpoint because that's his home. That's where he came from. Now, I know that he wasn't created there, but he created everything that was here, so therefore he is above everything here. He's over all uh, earthly things, okay? He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So if Jesus has come from heaven, he's got a different testimony than all of us. All our testimony is, is what we have seen and heard. If we go to court, we've seen an accident, and they ask for us to, to tell what happened. Only thing we, what we can tell is what we saw happen, right? What we experienced at a particular moment in time. Jesus has experienced heavenly things. That's the reason why Nicodemus was confused. And then Jesus responds, hey, if I tell you these earthly treasures and you don't believe, how can I tell you heavenly things and it make any sense to you? You're from the earth. See how this all ties back to Nicodemus? You're from the earth and and I can explain things from your standpoint, but if you can't get it here, how can I tell you the really extraordinary things of heaven and you expect to understand? But no one receives his testimony. That actually goes back just prior that at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. And we're told that many believed in his name. If you look at the last couple of verses there, nobody, uh, said many believed in his name because of the miracles that he performed. But Jesus didn't trust himself to any of them because he knew what was in man. Even though people believed in Jesus, and I, I think that the word believe there in Jesus in that setting is a little different than the way that we profess belief. They believed that he did those miracles, but did they believe his testimony about the heavenly things and the way to get there? If they did, then Jesus would have entrusted himself to them. But they didn't. They believed in the miracles that he did that professed that he was from heaven, But the things that he was talking about from the heavenly realm, they didn't necessarily accept. So therefore, Jesus didn't, he didn't entrust himself, I believe is the word that it uses there, to these people. Okay? So people aren't receiving his testimony. But whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. When you see that Jesus is testifying about heavenly things... And we say, wow, Jesus, that's pretty awesome stuff. I believe you. We're saying God is true and his message is truth. If you don't believe him, you're saying, God, you're a big fat liar and I don't believe you. I don't think that you're really going to take care of me. I don't believe that you're going to to allow me to have life in eternity. Life with you. God, you, you want me to exalt you, but you're just twisting things around a little bit to manipulate me. I don't believe your message. You're a liar. And that's the opposite of believing that it's truth, isn't it? I mean, it's either one or the other. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. This is the key verse. Jesus declares the words of God Because he's the only one that God has sent, right? For he whom God has sent, that'd be Jesus, utters the words of God. 
So Jesus has been sent from God. He tells us the words of God, okay, which should tell us that God is true or we're not believing his message, but he's telling us the words of God. How do we know this? For he gives the Spirit without measure. What's that mean, without measure? What that means is that there's no way that we can measure it. Jesus has so much of the Spirit inside of him, the Spirit of God, that it's like him and God are one. Sounds kind of Trinitarian, doesn't it? You've got all three persons of the Trinity right there. You've got God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, all there together. Jesus is telling us the exact words of God because the full embodiment of the Spirit is indwelling inside of him. He is the very image of God. In fact, Jesus tells us later on in this same gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. Why do we have a problem with it? Well, when we receive the Spirit, we receive the Spirit, but, but sometimes we hinder the Spirit. And even if we didn't hinder, well, we always hinder the Spirit to some sort of sense or another. There's this process the Bible discusses called sanctification. It's us becoming more and more and more like Christ, right? But we'll never be fully like Christ until the day that he returns to take us home. That's the day that we're glorified in the presence of God, according to Romans chapter 8. Even if we have the Spirit of God here inside of us, we resist him just a little bit each and every day. Okay? John, even though he probably had problems, in fact, we know that John had some problems, John the Baptist, that is, because uh, we know that there was times that he doubted his ministry. Um, I actually preached a message, if you go back and you look at chapter 2 there, I think that John had a really good reason to be, be uh, um, discouraged. He was preaching, and it didn't seem like anybody was listening. And then when somebody did listen, they took off and they followed this guy by the name of Jesus instead of following him. And then later on, he gets put into prison. He sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, Hey, are you the one? Now think about that. Are you the one, Jesus, that we're supposed to be waiting on? Now John's had the Spirit since birth. He leaped in his mother's womb. He saw the Spirit descending on Jesus, heard the Father say, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. He's seen Jesus do these miracles, and yet he's in prison, and he's discouraged. And he sends people to Jesus and says, hey, are you the one? And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I'm the one. He says, just go back and tell John what you see. The lame walk, the dead are raised. John will know what you mean. But John was discouraged, even though he had that spirit, because he didn't have the spirit the same way that Jesus, without measure. Okay, But Jesus had the Spirit without measure. And the little bit of Spirit that John had identified with that unmeasurable amount of Spirit that Jesus had. We can have that same kind of relationship with Christ that John had. If you accept Christ as your Savior, if you believe His message to be true, you say, God, man, you are good. And you don't call him a liar. You say, Lord, I I believe your message. And I don't only believe it, I accept it for myself. Here's the real deal. If you believe Christ, which I do, 
and I say, Jesus, I'm with you, if Jesus is a false prophet and he's burning in heaven, at least I'll be with Jesus is how I look at it. I'm going to be with Jesus with wherever he is. Amen. Yeah. What about you? Okay. Do you want to have this relationship with the bridegroom, with the shepherd? Do you hear his voice? Do you recognize his voice? If you have the spirit of God in you, you do. If you don't recognize this voice, maybe you just need to think about God's message and say, yes, Lord, I believe your message. And I need that message in my life. And then he will put that spirit and you can identify with the things that God is doing. See, in the end, it's not about my ministry and Fruta, about the ministry here, the ministry anywhere. It's not about the numbers. It's about obedience to what God has told us. It's about bringing praise, glory, and honor to Him. It's about building up the kingdom. Not my kingdom, His kingdom. I don't, I don't know where you're at today. You know, it's, it's every one of us. If you realize or not, you're all called to the ministry if you're a child of God. It, maybe not to come up here and, and stand and be a talking head like I am. You know, people think that I'm really special. I just would like to think that I'm an obedient guy that he's called to do some extraordinary things that I can't do apart from the Spirit of God. If you have the Spirit of God in you, he's not interested in your ability. He's interested in your availability. He's got the ability part taken care of with the Spirit of God. But you have to be born again. You have to be born again. Because, see, again, going back and tying this all together, Jesus tells, or we're told in, in, in John 1 that, that Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then we're told that, that the Word is the light of the world, that it exposes all the darkness, right? John says, hey, I'm not, I'm not the light, I'm not the prophet, I'm not the Christ. He is. Jesus wants to come into your, your life and empower you to do great things. But you have to be born from a heavenly Father, you have to be born from a heavenly father. He told Nicodemus, hey, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Nicodemus says, hey, can I crawl back into my mother's womb? No, 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 you don't get it. You were born from Adam. I'm telling you about heavenly things. I come from heaven with a heavenly message. You have to be born of that father. And we're told that that father is spirit. And we're to worship him in spirit and truth. So to be born from that Father, you have to be born of the Spirit coming and indwelling inside you. Now you might not be like Jesus where he get it without measure. But just a little bit of faith there in Jesus makes it to where you can identify Jesus. And you can hear his voice, the voice of the bridegroom. And you say, I'm following him because he's my protector, he's my provider, he's my savior. You know, I'm sure that some of us are here, and I'm not immune to this. There's a lot of times I'm like, God, why aren't you blessing my ministry? And he has to remind me, Mike, it's not your ministry. It's not your ministry. It's my ministry. I've just called you to be obedient. But again, if you're like myself and you're saying, God, why, have you, why haven't you blessed me? Why haven't you blessed us? Why are all these people going over there to follow you? Why aren't they following me? We need to remember what, what Paul said. He must increase and I must decrease. 
See, the world tells us, hey, I'm an important person. I got to increase. I got to be, I'm an important person. I, I want people to think that I'm great. For them to listen to my words. For them to obey my voice when they're working for me, right? Jesus says, no. No. Decrease. Let me live through you. Let me increase in your life. And then you can have life with abundance. And some of you might be here saying, you know what, Mike, I can't even identify with what you're talking about. And I'm telling you, friend, if you're here and that's you, it's because the Spirit's not inside you. But He's calling you. There's no reason else why you'd be here. God's not surprised that you're here today. A lot of us were surprised that Rick wasn't here today, right? God wasn't surprised that Rick wasn't here today. He's not surprised that you are here. He's got you here for good reason. If you have questions, please come and talk to me or, or go see somebody that you could tell that there's something different about them and they say, hey, I'm different because I'm following the voice of the shepherd. Come and talk to us. I'm going to invite Brian to come up as I close us in prayer. and He's going to, he's going to sing us a song of invitation. And If you've got questions, you know, I'm not going to tell you I have all the answers, but we can pray about it together. You know, maybe God just called you to be obedient in an area of your life and, and he's impressed upon you this morning something that, uh, that you just need to repent of. Lord, I've been making it all about my kingdom. Help me be more like John. Help me to remember it's always about your kingdom. And then if you don't know Christ, if you don't have that spirit living inside you, you know, if you just ask him, this is a promise in scripture. If you say, Lord, I don't know all this stuff that Mike's telling me, but I want to know you. I want you to introduce yourself to me. And I'm seeking you with all my heart, soul, and mind. It's a promise in Scripture that he will, he will display himself to you. But you have to genuinely seek him. You have to genuinely seek him. And then when, when you do do that, see, a, a decision not to believe God is a decision not to, well, if you say, God, I don't know about your message, then you're basically, you're calling him a liar. You're saying, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You have to make a decision. Indecision is a decision just to say no. We just don't like to think of it that way because we don't want the responsibility. But he's given you responsibility. Come and speak to me this morning or to someone. Pray there in your chair, okay? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I just again thank you so much for your word, for your message, for the assurance that we can have in Christ simply because the Spirit is speaking inside of us. Lord, I know that when I sing those words, hallelujah, holy, holy, it just inspires me because I love you so much, Lord. And I know that that love can't come from me because I'm evil and sinful inside but I know that it's the Spirit displaying a part of you inside, giving me a joy and a hope that I just can't explain on my own. Lord, help us to all have the joy that Paul had, the hope that he had that we could honestly say, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. It's not about my kingdom, it's about yours. Lord, I believe that you're moving here this morning and I just pray that people would respond accordingly. For it's in the powerful, purifying name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.